Previously, on End Terminal Debt. I have been dismissed from the hospital, so I'm on hospice because I can't have any more chemo or radiation. They were like, well, we can put you on maintenance chemo, but you'll be sick. And I'm like, who would want to do that? If it's not going to work, who would want to? You know, that doesn't even make sense. So I chose not to do that and just live my life to the fullest every day. Here's the thing, though. The project that you were involved in last year, one of the ladies I interviewed was a terminal cancer patient in Idaho. When her credit union found out that she was dying of stage four terminal colon cancer, they paid off all the debt that she had with them. Wow. Credit cards, car loans, the whole nine yards. Wow, amazing. What that has inspired me to do is to create a project that will convince every bank, credit union, credit card company, and mortgage company in this country to forgive the debt of all their terminal cancer patients, including you. Yeah, could you get them to do my car and my house note? Whoever holds your car note, whoever holds your mortgage, if they had made that decision when they first found out that you had gone stage four, how would that have impacted you? Oh my God, you talk about a burden, relief. I wouldn't have had to go to work sick. I've been able to stay home, you know what I'm saying? I, I wouldn't have had to struggle with not feeling well and worried about money. It, it would have been a relief. From Negative 25 Media, I'm Andy Janning, and this is the story about convincing one bank to forgive the debt they hold for one customer with terminal cancer and persuading other lenders to do the same. This is End Terminal Debt. A gang of robbers attack a Jewish traveler in ancient Palestine. They strip him of his clothes, take his money, and beat him up, leaving him for dead by the side of the road. Two prominent, respected members of society pass by the naked and wounded traveler, ignoring him completely. But the third passerby, a Samaritan, takes pity on the traveler. The Samaritan binds up the man's wounds, transports him to an inn, and takes care of him. The Samaritan pays the innkeeper out of his own pocket to make sure the traveler is safe and well-fed while he heals. This parable of the Good Samaritan is well-known and often quoted. It becomes even more powerful when we realize that at the time it was first told 2,000 years ago, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. A centuries-old grudge fueled by deep-seated racial, ethnic, and religious animosity. A Samaritan performing such a profound act of kindness and generosity for a sworn enemy would have shocked anyone who heard about it. And the itinerant rabbi telling the story knows it. He can see the surprise in the face of the expert in Jewish law who has been listening to the rabbi's tale. The rabbi asks the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law gives the only answer that makes sense the one who had mercy on him. The rabbi, named Jesus of Nazareth, replies, go and do likewise. We're familiar with the physical brutality of cancer. Scalps made smooth by chemo-driven hair loss, fatigue, weight loss, and bodies permanently scarred from invasive, life-saving surgeries. These images of suffering move us deeply, especially when it's our family and friends. But what isn't as obvious is the trauma that cancer inflicts on the financial health of the patient and their family. Cancer is the second leading cause of death in America. 
one in three women and one in two men in America will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lives. In the first month of their cancer diagnosis, the vast majority of cancer patients will hit their annual out-of-pocket maximum on their health care coverage. And according to healthcare.gov, that's over $8,000 for an individual and over $17,000 for a family. The average cost of treating a patient with cancer in America is estimated at over $150,000. Although the majority of those costs are covered by health insurance, 73% of adult cancer patients will suffer catastrophic financial trauma because of what they still must pay out of their own pocket. They'll sink deeply into debt to cover co-payments, deductibles, prescription drug costs, lost income from not being able to work, and the food, fuel, and lodging costs necessary to get to and from their treatments. That's why cancer patients are nearly three times more likely to file for bankruptcy than those without cancer. And the traumatic financial choice that is bankruptcy also exacts a devastating emotional and physical toll, because those who do go bankrupt have a 79% higher risk of early mortality. A cancer patient dies every 50 seconds in this country. The outstanding debt they owe to their creditors has to be paid somehow. The patient survivors will face difficult choices about what property and assets to keep or sell or become legally responsible for debt they can't pay, a crushing financial burden that can last for years after the patient's death. And it's even worse for African Americans. Even if a cancer patient has life insurance, which barely half of all Americans do, African Americans have just $50,000 in coverage, one-third of the $150,000 in coverage carried by white Americans. The wealth of a white family at $188,000 is eight times that of an African-American family of $24,000. Moreover, African-Americans still have the highest death rate and lowest survival rate of any racial or ethnic group for most cancers. Taken together, these disparities and difficulties make it exponentially harder for cancer patients in America, especially African Americans, to survive cancer, preserve and build generational wealth in the face of a terminal diagnosis, and close the profound economic gaps that exist between races in this country. Convincing every lender to forgive the debt held by their current customers and members with terminal cancer, especially African Americans, is a social justice issue, a public health issue, and a financial well-being issue. I've repeated these talking points to myself countless times in the last year to remind myself of the immense stakes involved here. I'm intimidated by the weight of all of it, though. Truth be told, I've wanted to walk away from this more times than I can count, go back to focusing on just my speaking and storytelling career, and leave this grim business to experienced lobbyists and activists. But Elizabeth won't let me forget. She's the terminal colon cancer patient in Idaho whose credit union paid off the credit cards and car loans she had with them. I know that one act of mercy lifted her spirits and helped her bring her brief life to a graceful end. Lisa won't let me forget. I hated talking about the financial miracle that Elizabeth experienced without telling Lisa that such a miracle awaited her too. I hated that Lisa was just another account number to the bank that can afford to do much better for her. Elizabeth and Lisa are two of the strongest people I've ever met. Both given a death sentence too young and too soon, they loved their families and friends with that urgent, fervent devotion that spares no expense, leaves nothing unsaid, and no good deed undone. 
their courage bolsters my own, flimsy as it is on too many days, when the suffering of another is too small to redirect the steps of my life, and the wounded neighbor lying on the other side of the road seems too far away for me. But that's where Lisa is. She's easy to overlook and ignore. Will her bank see her and help her? It's time to find out. As convenient as it would be to walk into a branch of Lisa's bank and talk to somebody about her situation, I can't. The main reason is geography. The nearest branch is over 100 miles away from my house. But the other is because a branch manager probably doesn't have the authority to make the decision to forgive Lisa's loan outright. That's a job for senior bank leaders whose offices sit atop skyscrapers thousands of miles away. Now, who is Lisa's bank? I'm not going to reveal that just yet. All I'll say is this. The bank is one of the 10 largest in America. Even if you don't have an account with them, you've probably heard of them. Why so coy? I don't want to cast the bank as the villain of this story. Quite the opposite. I want this bank to be the good Samaritan, the generous servant with the heart and desire to sacrificially serve a wounded traveler in their most desperate hour. If there are villains to be named... Let them be fear, apathy, and greed. They are our oldest adversaries, drowning out the still small voices of our better angels. I'm hoping that this project knocks the fear, apathy, and greed back long enough and that enough banks and credit unions and credit card companies and mortgage lenders to help those institutions remember how loving our fellow man in his time of need is noble and necessary. Although walking into one of these banks' branches isn't an option, LinkedIn is always just a click away, so I decide to start there. A few minutes of searching on LinkedIn yields the names of two men with executive-level positions in auto lending at the bank. I'll call them Bill and Ted. I check their profiles and see if either of them are active on LinkedIn. Neither of them have shared any posts in months, though, and have liked only a few items here and there. I have no connections in common with Bill and only three very distant ones with Ted, but I send invitations to both of them around midnight Eastern time to connect. Given their lack of activity and that they don't know me from a hole in the ground, I seriously doubt anything's going to come of this. But the very next morning, to my pleasant surprise, they both accept my invitation. Flushed with confidence, I direct message each of them. I tell them about Lisa's health and financial challenges, talk about Elizabeth's credit union forgiving her debt, ask these bankers to do the same for Lisa, then thank them for their time. Neither Bill nor Ted respond to my message, though. Now I'm really confused because Ted had even viewed my LinkedIn profile before accepting the invitation to connect, which meant he had to have seen my direct message. But to this day, I have never heard from either Bill or Ted. I'm really frustrated by this dramatic change in fortunes in the space of a few hours. I'd gone from making two improbable connections with senior decision makers at one of the largest banks in America, only to have both of them ghost me after I explain why I need their help. I know this happens not because I have any journalistic expertise or experience, mind you, but rather because I've watched it and heard about it in the endless hours of documentary podcasts and films I'd binged over the years from respected, experienced investigative journalists who stubbornly refuse to accept a source of silence, who keep digging until the truth has been brought to light. 
A valuable source going dark at a pivotal moment is an interesting, plot-advancing point when it's someone else's story. But it's far more urgent, messy, and maddening when it's your story that you're producing for not just your own podcast, but for a cause that will directly affect the quality of life of someone for whom you care very deeply, and maybe countless others with the same hardship. Another round of, hey, let's call this whole thing off, kicks off inside my head. The argument is especially powerful because Lisa doesn't know about any of this. I've intentionally kept her in the dark about this whole effort because I didn't want to get her hopes up, only to have her bank reject this request out of hand. I could have quietly shut this whole idea down, and no one would ever know. I mean, Bill and Ted's silence is confirmation of the futility of this whole quest, right? No way this works. This isn't my fight. Let Lisa figure this one out on her own. She'll be fine by the side of the road. That is the voice of fear. It's sneaky how it works, how it cuts through every soft spot in my defenses to whisper straight into my ear, telling me to stand down long enough to lose momentum and focus until apathy can finish me off. But Lisa is dying. Every day is hard for her, yet she's still here, courageously living her life to the fullest. It's pretty weak of me to bail just because two strangers ignored me. It's time to stop screwing around. I need to get the attention of somebody much higher up at Lisa's bank. I hit the jackpot on the corporate governance section of their website. It lists the names and brief bios of every board member, an email address to send messages to the entire board at once, and names and titles of the bank's senior leadership. One executive catches my attention, the CEO of Consumer Lending, who I'll call Jim. I decide to email not just the board, but also direct message Jim through LinkedIn. Now, even though I'm over two on this approach, I still have to try. Objectively speaking, this is a Hail Mary. This bank has over 50 million customers in the United States. I couldn't get a response from execs like Bill and Ted. And for my message to rise to the top of any inbox connected to the most senior leaders at the top of this organization, especially a message from some random guy who has never had an account at that bank, that would be momentous indeed. I review the message for Jim and the board. It's based on the same basic copy that I used for Bill and Ted. Start with Lisa, pivot to the story of the credit union forgiving Elizabeth's debt, ask the bank to do the same, thank them for their time. But these are C-level, board-level leaders. This pitch needs something extra, something that I didn't have for Bill and Ted. A story about the most generous man I've ever known. A modern-day Samaritan I'd met face-to-face -face just two days prior, who has some very pointed words for the financial services industry and the terminal cancer patients they serve. The man is Dr. Omar Atik. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences and the Director of Head and Neck Medical Oncology Service and Bone Marrow Service at the Winthrop P. Rockefeller Cancer Institute. In January 2022, Dr. Atik was named president of the American College of Physicians, the first Pakistani-American to lead the prestigious organization. For nearly three decades, Dr. Atik ran his own private cancer clinic in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Due to staffing shortages at the clinic, Dr. Atik made the difficult decision to close the facility in 2020. And, in and that's when he discovered... Of course, all 
the billings and collections was done by staff and starting March 1, 2020, I had no staff. So, you know, they started sending me billing and collection reports, which was one of our collection companies. And that was the first time I started seeing them. Once I just, you know, kind of was looking at that and there were people who were treated much earlier in the years and they still owed money. And so I just thought and said, you know, these people probably don't have the resources to pay and and why just carry this and why? Uh, and so I just talked to my wife and our children. We decided as, and, and then COVID of course, you know, started in March 1. And so in the fall, we decided that we may as well just, you know, write this off. Maybe we, we, we should just forgive this debt. That was really it. Mm-hmm. It happened that we were close to Christmas, so we just sent a small card saying, you all don't owe us anything. And that was it. He sent those small cards with, you don't owe us anything, to 200 patients who collectively owed the clinic over $650,000. The story of his generosity went viral, picked up by news outlets across the country and around the world. I want to bring you this feel-good story this morning about a retiring Arkansas doctor and his parting gift to his patients. Miracle for cancer patients in Pine Bluff. A remarkable story of generosity. Absolutely amazing story. In this crazy world, there are still people doing good things. It's nothing short of a Christmas miracle for cancer patients in Pine Bluff. As monumental as it was for others, this decision was as natural to him as breathing. We just get caught up in stuff and, and sometimes, some ways, you know, that innate humanity just shows up a little bit. And I think, I think that's what it is. So I, I really think, I really think that we are so much better than we think we are as a society. We're just somehow, some way, just scared to be good. <laughs> and so I'd already received more than my due in numerous ways. You know, frankly, it might sound a little Pollyannish. It wasn't even, we never thought it was a big deal in a sense that, you know, anybody else probably would do the same in similar, under similar circumstances. You just have to think about it and do it. He's quick to point out what his story is really about. The story last year really was taken to somewhat of my dismay in a wrong way. The story was not debt forgiveness. Mm -hmm. The story was debt. And why should people who are sick have debt? And you and I, as individuals, as human beings, would like to think that we are better than that. So what is it as a human being that we need, that we have, we have needed forever for living? Mm-hmm. It's been food, shelter, and then a sense of security of living in a society. And so when do you need to have that security, not just the sense, when you are vulnerable? And when are you most vulnerable? Whether you're rich or poor, it's when you're sick. And so it just tells me 
that just as you are doing it, that's why I'm so glad that there is a very powerful story that talks to us, talks to each one of us in a profound manner that just hasn't been told in the way it needs to be narrated. He saves his most powerful guidance, though, for the end of our conversation, when I ask him what he would say to every CEO of every bank, credit union, credit card company, and mortgage company to convince them to forgive the debt they hold for terminal cancer patients. As the leaders of their institutions, as the leader of the thousands of people and their families who work under them, as part of the society, the country, and humanity, that one act, I believe, would bring them more inner joy than pretty much anything else. They would never regret it. I'm confident of that. They would never regret it. And they would just start a movement that their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and their generations would be proud of. With Dr. Atik's wisdom fresh in my mind, I add a brief summary of his viral claim to fame to the pitch email, review it for the hundredth and final time, then send it at 12.45 a.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, January 23rd, 2022, to the bank's board of directors and to the man I'm calling Jim, the bank's CEO of Consumer Lending. I brace myself for indifference and silence, same as with Bill and Ted, or not, because less than 24 hours later, there's an email in my inbox from the bank, but not from Bill or Ted. Good morning, Mr. Janning. My name is Mary, and I'm responding on behalf of Jim. You reached out to him on LinkedIn messaging in regards to Lisa. What Mary says next will change everything. That's next time on End Terminal Debt. Thanks for listening. If you want to help others hear about Lisa and her story, please share the show on social media, then subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening now. To support the mission of End Terminal Debt, visit endterminaldebt.com and follow us on social media at End Terminal Debt. The End Terminal Debt podcast is a production of Negative 25 Media. It's written by me, Andy Janning. Music by Gavin Luke and Epidemic Sound. Produced and edited by Resonate Recordings. Graphic design by Ryan Hunley of Second Street Creative. The voice of Mary is played by my talented daughter, Megan Janning. I'm especially grateful to Dr. Omar Atik for his time and wisdom. Special thanks to Renee Sadiwhite, George Hoffheimer, James Marshall, Cedric Brinson, Louise Jackson, Brian Moore, and Lauren Callahan. <laughs>